continuing our study. We began last week with the first chapter of 1 Samuel. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 2 this evening. So 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning to read at verse 1. This is God's word for us. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is a none holy like the Lord. For there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, to inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength. To his king, the Lord, or and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. We do pray that God would help us to understand and apply uh, profitably his word to us. Let's again join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to contemplate your word, we ask for your spirit to be the light that illumines the page for us. Lord, we need to hear from you. You are the one who alone is truth, and so we look for that truth to transform our lives, to guide our steps, and to bring us into that place where we glorify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one through whom we pray. Amen. So last Sunday evening we began this series of sermons in the book of First Samuel, or really the book of Samuel, there really was no first and second Samuel in the beginning, it was just plain Samuel on one book. It's one story, one record of a nation's quest for a king, a deliverer. And let me remind you, as we said last Sunday evening, that the opening chapters are set against the backdrop of Uh, Moral bankruptcy in the nation, spiritual bankruptcy in the church. And in a sense, this this barrenness of spirit that is in the nation is is portrayed in the life of, of this woman, Hannah. She is barren. 
Peninnah, her rival wife in the home of Elkanah, mocks her and in a sense that's the world mocking unfruitful Israel for its failure to be faithful to God. And the lesson, hopefully, if you remember, we tried to glean from last Sunday night study was that the hope of the world is found in a baby's cry. The hope of the world is is found in a baby's cry. When the world is in a mess, when we're in desperate need for deliverance, God works in a family. And a baby is born. That baby becomes the means whereby God's rescue might be presented to his people. It was the hope of of Genesis 3.15 where God promised right at the very beginning at the fall of man that in time the enemy of our souls would be crushed. And we see that story told time and time again through through Genesis and Exodus. And we see it here in the longing of Hannah for a son. And it's all pointing us toward that, the, the breaking of the silence of the night in Bethlehem when God sent his deliverer, King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The good news of great joy for all people. And this season of darkness, this deep spiritual darkness that we find depicted particularly in the closing chapters of the, of the book of Judges, the, into that darkness there are these bright lights, stories of, of faithful women, the beautiful story of Ruth who entrusts herself to God, the story of Hannah who, who in her desperation cries out to God. And the God of Israel does not disappoint those who seek him. The book of Ruth, which interrupts the flow from Judges to Samuel, this little story of a, of a family in Bethlehem. It leaves us with a, a bit of a teaser, with a clue as to what's going to unfold. So in, in, in Ruth chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, that the baby that's born to Ruth shall be to you a restorer of life. Again in verse 17, It says, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And here in this time when everybody was doing whatever they saw fit to do in their own eyes, there was no king, there was no authority, everybody uh, just helped themselves, pleased themselves. There is this hope that is sown because we know who Obed and Jesse and David are. We know that this is the family that will produce a king for the nation. A baby's born. God's gift to his needy world. In the weeks ahead, we're going to have to cover large chunks of narrative. Uh, big stories about great dramas where God is working in the lives of people. But tonight, it's very different. Tonight, we find the words of Hannah's prayer or, or Hannah's song or, or even Hannah's psalm. This is a psalm very much like the Psalms we read in the book with that name. And if you're familiar with First and Second Samuel, you'll see that the whole book of Samuel, First and Second, is, is bookended by songs. So here it starts with Hannah's song, and if you turn to, to 2 Samuel 22, you'll see David's psalm, David's song, which concludes the, 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 this great book. And what we have here in these verses is, a, again, a trailer. Forthcoming attractions. Hannah, as she speaks to God, is beginning to tell us what's going to unfold. 
We get little glimpses of what's yet to be, and hopefully I'll remember to to note these as we make our way through the text. And Hannah is inspired to worship God. In a sense, if you were here last week, this is the fourth point of last week's sermon, because last week we saw Hannah's problem, Hannah's prayer, and Hannah's promise. And here tonight we think of Hannah's praise. Through all that she's experienced in this journey, she's come to a point where she is stirred to praise her God, to sing to her great and good God. And it begins and indeed it continues throughout with this declaration of of praise to one who is the incomparable God. The incomparable God. Verse 1, and Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Hannah is stirred to sing. She's stirred to praise God. And we should be stirred to praise God and to sing. You may not be the greatest singer in the world, but you should open your mouth, expand your lungs, and let some noise come out because God designed you, made you to do that. And we've got to sing, but we've got to be careful as we sing because we absorb far more theology from our singing than from our sermons, I suspect. So much of what we we really know is imprinted in our hearts through songs, and we must be cautious because sometimes they can they can lead us astray. For example, if you want to turn up as number uh, one thousand and twenty-two, uh, Michael W. Smith's song "Above All." I love that song. It's a great song. Do you know that song? It would have been a great song to sing tonight. So in line with our theme, the incomparable God. It goes above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things. Above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known. Above all wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. And and Hannah would be singing a song a bit like that. That's a great song. But the problem is at the very end of that song, Speaking of the cross and the, the sacrifice of God's love there, it finishes with this line. It says, and you thought of me above all. And all of a sudden, you, you should feel a shudder up your spine. For all of a sudden, this song takes us to a place where my wants and my needs are primary. The whole focus of eternity, God who made all things really, is just all interested and focused on me. And when that becomes our our inspiration, when we become the center of the universe, this panders to our narcissistic nature, we, we begin to reveal our family likeness to the devil. This glorious spiritual being, you know where he began? He began in heaven, but because of his desire to lift up himself and make himself the focus of attention, he was cast down by God. So you've got to watch your worship and be cautious. And ensure that at all times, praise takes you to exult and rejoice in God. John Piper comments, He saved us precisely so that we could see and savor His glory as the supreme treasure of the universe above all. 
We are saved not for us, but for God, so that we might be his eternal worshippers. Praise must be directed to the only one who is worthy, the incomparable God. And remember the context of this song that Hannah sings. Remember what has happened before this. She has received this long-awaited, much-prayed-for gift of a son. In faithfulness to her vow, she has taken the boy and given him back to God that he would serve in the worship center at Shiloh. And amazingly, with these things going on, Hannah's heart, her prayer, her song, as she worships, she only has God on her heart and on her mind. Twenty-one times in these ten verses, she speaks of the Lord. There's no mention of her child. There's no sense of heartache at her vow-keeping. Merely delight in the goodness, the grace of her God toward her. You see, there is no hint, no evidence of idolatry here. It is the Lord, the great giver and not his good gifts that captivate her heart. Hannah is a worshiper of the incomparable God. And there are other things, and they're good things, and they're important to Hannah. They're important to us, I'm sure. But for Hannah, we see God is her all in all. Tim Keller writes in his book, Counterfeit Gods. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. But we sense that Hannah makes no mistake here. She worships God and God alone. But we've got to examine our own hearts and got to question ourselves. Do you, do I? What is it that occupies primary place in your heart, in your life? Ask yourself those important questions. What do I really live for? What gets the the major portion of my time and my energy, my finance, my concern? What is it that I could not live without? What if it, if it was lost to me, would take the very meaning from my life? And very often when you ask yourself those soul-probing questions, the answer is not Jesus. Jesus clarifies the cost of radical discipleship to us. He speaks those discomforting words in Luke 14, 26. He says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now we understand that's not a command to hate anyone. It's quite clear from uh, the consistent message of Scripture that, that that's not what Jesus is saying to us. Rather, it is a call to imperil our, our, our natural relationships for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's a call to imperil our natural relationships for the sake of the kingdom of God. How does this work? What does that mean? Well, you remember Abraham? Abraham faced this challenge. He climbed Mount Moriah with this long-awaited, much-desired, deeply-loved son, Isaac. 
Hebrews 11 records verse 17 to 19. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham offered up Isaac. Why? Because he had wholehearted commitment to his God. Hannah offers up Samuel because she had wholehearted commitment to her God. It cost them daily to be faithful. But ultimately we have to understand that if we give to God all that we have, if we make available to him our everything, whatever the cost, it's a zero risk investment. Because God always richly rewards those who come to him in faith. So Hannah praises God and she explains to us that this incomparable God is the cause of her praise and her her pride and her preservation. Her, Her exaltation, her exaltation and her extrication, if you want to use different points. Her exaltation, she praises God. It's her reason for praise, but also her pride, her exaltation. Can't give me U and my A different, but you see, if you've got an ESV, I'm not sure other versions, but it says, "My heart exalts you uh, in the Lord, and exalt my horn is exalted a in the Lord." Her pride, her exaltation. She sings, "My horn is exalted." She has been lifted up. She she feels like she's set on a pedestal because God has been at work in her life. This relationship that she has with the Lord has has lifted her. Now, this is a rather difficult concept for us to understand and to apply. It's often used in scriptures. It's often used in the Psalms. But I reckon you've never used it in everyday speech. People are going to think you're particularly weird if you come to them and say, you know, my, my horn is exalted. It just doesn't sound right. But we understand what it means. Because I'm sure all of you have, and if not, seen it live, you'll see it on TV, a, 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 a herd of deer. And if you look at a herd of deer and you watch them, there'll be one that stands out, the one with the, the long and the beautiful antlers. And you see that one with the head held high and the horns reaching high, and you realize that's the boss. That's the one who's in charge. That's the one who struts about confidently, pomp and pride in the way in which he handles himself. His horn is raised high. And Hannah's saying here, because of the Lord, because God has worked in my life, I can hold my head up. Once I was put down, once I felt low, but now the Lord has lifted me up. God was at work in her life. Some of you were around in the 70s. Some of you rocked. Did you rock in the 70s, Gilly? Did you rock in the 70s? There's a group called Argent. No? Looking at Terry, my age. You know. A group called Argent, and they sang, and they went on and on, and they said, Hold your head up. Oh, hold your head. People do recognize this. You know. Hold your head up. Oh, hold your head high. And that went on and on. Nobody... Recognizes that song at all. Hold your head up, hold your head up, hold your head high, it said. But Hannah's 
Prayer does not come from the power of positive thinking. She's not learning from those self-help gurus. There's a man called Edmund Mbiaka. He, he wrote these words. He said, always keep your mind strong with thoughts of positivity. Your head up with full confidence and a big smile on your face because you truly have greatness in you. And that's a load of cod's wallop, but the world will tell you things like that. You know, you should be self-confident. You should, you should be strong. And, and God says, no, let me lift you up. Let me give you the cause for pride. Let me delight in you that you might delight in me so that your head would be lifted up. It's 2 Samuel 15. God willing, we'll get there someday. But in that chapter, we learn of Absalom's betrayal of his father, King David. And because Absalom has usurped his father's throne, David and his entourage are, are forced to flee from Jerusalem. And in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, we read these words. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. It's a tragic picture. It's pitiful that the the great King David is walking barefoot, tears streaming, head covered in the dirt and dust as he leaves Jerusalem. His head is down, but read Psalm 3 as we did at the start of our service. And Psalm 3 says it's written in the context of David having to flee from Jerusalem because of, of Absalom, his son. And David writes this psalm in that circumstance. Psalm 3, verse 3 says this. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head. Now in a gathering of this size, there will be people among us who feel a little bit like that barefoot and weeping David doesn't matter what has got you there. It can be any manner of circumstance, but, but your head is down. Your heart is heavy. And all too easily you can cry. But when you, like David or like Hannah, cry out to the Lord, you are not left disappointed. For we rejoice to know that the God we come to worship is the God who calls himself the lifter of heads. The covenant-keeping God, this incomparable God, is Hannah's reason for her praise and for her pride. It's not herself. It's God has lifted her up. And he's the source of her preservation. She has been rescued. Things were uh, very uh, disturbing, distressing for her. But that disgrace has been lifted off her by God and his good gift to her. And so of this incomparable God, she sings... There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. There is no one. There is no thing that can be compared. There are no other gods. God is singularly distinct. As we said this morning, he is the way, the only way, the only truth, the only life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to heaven and to home but by him. The incomparable God. And, and then quickly in the last couple of points, he is the inverting God, verses 3 through to 8. 
He's the inverting God. And this should be a, a familiar message to us, but we need to be reminded of it. God is a God who has a habit of turning everything on its head. God is one who consistently reverses the value system of this world. So in the book of Samuel, we will encounter those who speak boastfully. Whether it's Pinyon's insults in the family home of Elkanah. Or it's Goliath's trash talking in 1 Samuel 17. On, on people such as this, God will turn the tables. And Hannah rejoices in this. You remember when Goliath bragged to David what he was going to do. him. We, we read 1 Samuel 17, 45 to 47 says this. David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hand. You see, Ecclesiastes 9.11 says that, in God's economy, in God's work, it's, the battle is not to the strong. No, we find the powerful are left defenseless while the weak are infused with power. Or again, verse 9 says, it's not by might that man shall prevail. The strong are brought down and at the, the, the end of, of this book, the beginning of, of Second Samuel, David sings that song and he, he speaks of the fall of Saul and Jonathan. He says, how have the mighty fallen? How have the mighty fallen? How have the mighty fallen? God brings people strong down and raises up those who are weak. Hannah's song continues, those who were once overfed go hungry. Those who were hungry are now full and satisfied. Those who are barren have borne seven children. Verse 8 speaks of the poor man being lifted out of the dust and being allowed to sit and, and eat with princes. 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read of the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's crippled son, had lived in a place called Lodavar. It was a, a back end of nowhere sort of place where nothing good ever happened. And David sought him out and brought him to sit at his table with his princely sons. It bears no human logic. It's all of grace. God turns everything upside down. Now you've heard of Charles Darwin. He had a theory. A theory about biological evolution and natural selection. And he suggested that it would be the fittest who would survive and prosper. And the weak would be swept away into extinction. And God said, Charles, you didn't make the world I did. And this world will operate according to my purposes, my plans. Verse 8 says, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on him, on them he has set the world. God's world is his, and it observes a different set of values, a different set of rules. What the world sees as powerful and prosperous, God mocks. In his commentary on Luke's Gospel, Michael Wilcox notes, The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. Let me read that again. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. 
We've got to look at our hearts and say, have I bought into the world system? Is that the value system that controls my thinking and uh, directs my steps? Or do I think differently? Has my love for Jesus and his work in my heart given me a different set of standards? See, 2,000 years ago, as Jesus ministered, people got it all wrong and he had to tell them stories to let them see how far askew they were. And so he tells a story about a man who goes down a road to Jericho and it's not the professional religious holy man who is the hero of the story, but rather it's the despised foreigner who comes to his aid. That's not what they expected. That's not how it ought to be. He told a story when the hero was not the good and upright stay-at-home son who always did what his father said, but rather the one we favor is the one who ran away and wasted his father's money in wild and sinful living. Things were not as we might assume because Jesus said, I have turned this world upside down. I am the inverting God. The Apostle Paul understood this. All the human accolades that he had achieved in his life, all those measures of his success, he said, this is a load of rubbish. He spoke to the Corinthian church. And he challenged them to remember their path. He said, 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So I've got to recognize the God we worship is the inverting God, the God who, who turns everything on its head. And we, as his people, those who would claim to follow him, must live in a countercultural way. We should be distinct from the world. People should mock us, laugh at us, saying, what are those strange people doing? They're doing it all upside down. It's all wrong. And we must make our message heard, the gospel message. This incredible good news that the doors of God's kingdom are open only to those who know of themselves that they are not worthy. The incomparable God, Hannah, delights in the inverting God she worships. And finally she speaks and hints off the incarnate God. Verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. His king, his anointed. Of course, you know, we have the word English, his anointed, but in Hebrew it's Messiah, in Greek it's Christ. And Hannah sees something by God's enabling that others were unable to see. Hannah understands that the ultimate hope of the world rests not in her firstborn son that she has given to God, but in God's firstborn son that he has given to the world. And she sees ahead of this king. I mean, there was no king in Israel in these days. But Hannah sees ahead to the day when God is going to exalt, lift up his Messiah, his anointed before the world. 
It would be on a cross on a hill called Calvary, but, but he would be lifted up. He would be exalted. As the great king would give his life and shed his blood for the sins of the world. And as we listen to Hannah's song and her delight and her thankfulness, her praise to her God, our delight, our thankfulness should be overwhelmingly greater, infinitely greater than hers. For God has not given us a son, but he has given us his son. But it doesn't stop there. He hasn't just given us his son. He has, through him, enabled us to become his sons, to be adopted as his children. And the only appropriate response to make to such a God and such goodness and greatness is to say with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you to worship you. There is no one, nothing to equal you. You are the incomparable God. And we do ask forgiveness, Lord, for when the idols of this world have captured our hearts, where we have given our, our delight, our praise, our, our, our worth to what is not you. Lord, it's such a simple thing. We live in a world that places many bright and shiny things before us and they can captivate us. And they draw us away from you. Lord, we have many good things. We are a blessed people, but good things are not God things, but they can become God things to us. So help us not to worship what you have made. Not to worship the creator, but the, the creation, but the creator. To make much of you, to give our all to you, to serve, love, adore you. And Lord, we pray for distinctiveness in our lives. We pray that we would live as people who do not sit comfortably with the world's value system. What they pursue, what they engage in is not for us. We know that the way to succeed is, is the humble way, to be servant-hearted people. Not to seek to get and grasp for ourselves, but to give. Lord, we pray that we might disturb this world because of our difference. And make them ask questions. For Lord, what might seem weak and foolish to the world is prized and valued by you and used to you so that all the honor belongs to you. So we offer our lives to you, Lord, in service. Help us to learn from Hannah, this woman who worshipped well. May we worship this incomparable God. For there is no one like you. May we ever have your name on our lips. Your love in our hearts, we ask through Christ our Lord. Amen.